On December 10th, a London high court approved the extradition of the founder of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, to U.S. authorities. Assange has since appealed the ruling to Britain's Supreme Court. The U.S. government's charges against Assange raise some important questions about the future of journalism and First Amendment protections of a free press. The national correspondent for The Nation magazine and associate editor for The Capital Times, John Nichols, condemns President Biden's prosecution of Julian Assange, a co-founder of the media reform group Free Press. Nichols has testified before U.N. forums and congressional committees on media issues and has twice keynoted World Congresses of the International Federation of Journalists. John Nichols joins us now to talk more about this case and its future implications. Good morning, John. Good morning. It's good to be with you. So let's start with the big question. What what impacts would a successful prosecution of Julian Assange have on freedom of the press in the United States? Well, that's, of course, always to be determined, right? But uh, what are the potential impacts? If Julian Assange is tried and convicted on the charges that have been brought against him, then it is within reason to presume that judges in the future could try and convict other journalists or convict journalists if you don't if you don't happen to decide to label Julian Assange as such of the same thing. And what did Julian Assange do? He helped someone to get classified information so that that information could be shared with the American people. I.e. he worked with Chelsea Manning uh, in order to reveal information about what the United States was doing in Iraq and Afghanistan during undeclared wars uh, that turned out to be uh, incredibly embarrassing to the United States government, horrifying to the world. Uh, And it was information that the American people needed to know. And so if we just extrapolate out from that and say, well, what if a journalist was investigating the U.S. response to COVID or investigating Uh, another war or investigating financial crimes or something else that the U.S. government didn't want that classified information to be revealed. A journalist for the Washington Post or the New York Times or anyplace else worked with someone to get that information out and then published it. Uh, That other journalist, that that person who might be, you know, far more respected or far more revered uh, could also be tried for the same thing. Now, the U.S. Department of Justice claims that Assange is on charges of conspiracy related to mm-hmm. assisting someone in computer hacking, not necessarily what he published. Is that a important or relevant distinction? It's somewhat relevant, but not, not in the end uh, definitional. Because, look, it's often the case that a, a journalist who is working with someone who has information says to that person, look, um, you've maybe contacted me. You've, you've let me know that you have access to something. Uh, I can't publish a story on this or I can't do a report on this unless you get me more detail, unless you get me, you know, the clear evidence. And so it's often the case, although this isn't talked about so much, it's often the case that a journalist will work with a source and say, you've got to go back and, and try and get more information. You've got to figure out how to dig deeper into this thing. If you go back and look at Watergate uh, and Deep Throat, you'll find that Woodward and Bernstein would say to Deep Throat, you know, look, 
we don't have enough here. We, 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 we have to understand this better. Uh, and this has happened throughout history. And so uh, the charge that Julian Assange helped someone to hack, i.e. to dig deeper, to get more information, is just a contemporary modern digital age expression of something that, you know, whether we like it or not, a lot of journalists have done and have had to do in order to tell the American people what is being done in their name but without their informed consent. Now, Assange's case has not received a lot of attention in the mainstream media, even though civil rights groups have been sounding the alarm for a while. Mm -hmm. Given the implications that this case might have for the practice of journalism, why aren't more media outlets taking up the cause? I think we have an embarrassingly subservient media in the United States. By and large, our media is quite willing to stand up to uh, a president uh, or to a prominent figure when you have a, a clear partisan battle. But in the case of Assange, what you have is someone who has frankly uh, offended people in both parties, uh, people of many ideologies. And so you see at the higher levels of our politics a, a surprising level of agreement to go and prosecute Assange. You see, you know, Hillary Clinton thinks it's a good idea. Donald Trump thinks it's a good idea. You know, administration after administration. And so when you don't have that political clash in the United States, because we tend to have a very stenographic media, and our media likes to do stenography to power. So if a Democrat's saying one thing and a Republican is saying another thing, well, then our media loves it, right? It's, you know, very easy to report the quote-unquote two sides of something. But when you have someone who is, frankly, offending all sides, then our media is often very, very reluctant, resistant, uh, uncomfortable. Now, contrast that with the rest of the world. In the uh, United Kingdom, in Europe, uh, you will see you know, journalist unions, uh, journalist groups, uh, media groups, even publications saying this prosecution is wrong. And... Uh, so it's, it is a, a, I wouldn't say it's a uniquely American problem, but it is a problem that is clearly uh, more expressed in the United States than in a lot of other countries. And it is something that concerns me because journalists and political figures who say that they are passionate about the First Amendment, who believe strongly in the need to protect that First Amendment protection for freedom of the press. And remember, that's not just a protection for journalists, that's really initially written as a protection for people who publish, for people who get information and bring it out to the, the great mass of Americans. Uh, if you say you're really passionate about protecting that First Amendment uh, provision, then you've got to stand up for the folks who are controversial, who are uh, on the edges, who maybe have caused scandal and have uh, gotten in trouble uh, because if you don't, then you set precedents that can come back to haunt uh, even your main so-called mainstream journalists. Now, what's interesting to me about that is you talk about the United Kingdom and, and press groups in the United Kingdom speaking out against uh, the U.S.'s prosecution here. And the United Kingdom and many of the other countries that you discuss, they do not have a guaranteed First Amendment protection of the press. Do you think in the U.S. the First Amendment makes our press a little lazy? Sure. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure it does in some cases. 
Now, I don't want to criticize all of the U.S. press because there have been some media institutions in the U.S. that have, have stepped up and, and done the right thing. And there are media institutions in the U.S. that boldly and bravely go after very powerful figures on a regular basis. They do a better job of covering politics than of covering the business side. We're very weak in this country on covering corporate abuses and, and corporate excesses. But, you know, there's, there's good players in the U.S. media. But I do think that what's happened in a lot of U.S. media is the development of a sense of uh, media outlets and their employees as elites, as sort of high priests who do a, uh, an honorable work that uh, will always be respected and always be trusted and, and accepted. Well, that's been blown apart, certainly by Donald Trump and frankly by things that have happened over, over the last few decades. Uh, you know, Trump attacked the, the most respected journalists in this country, uh, the most mainstream journalists in this country, and they pushed back. So in that case, you saw, you know, some very righteous and appropriate uh, stances on behalf of the First Amendment saying, well, the president shouldn't say that, the president shouldn't do that, et cetera, et cetera. That's great. That's exactly right. We should see that. But what we have to understand is that assaults on freedom of the press often attack the small publisher, the, the person on the fringe, the person who challenges the status quo uh, and perhaps is not associated with either side of the ideological spectrum or maybe is on one side but, but crosses lines and, and you know, does things that are con very controversial. And if you understand the history of how we've really protected freedom of the press in this country, you have to go back to the 19-teens and 1920s and the first Red Scare. And it was battles by anarchist publishers and socialist publishers like Victor Berger in Milwaukee uh, for their free press rights that ultimately led to a definition of freedom of the press as we now understand it. And this is an important thing because the battles are only rarely fought by the Washington Post or the New York Times. They are more often fought by the Milwaukee Leader or Emma Goldman's anarchist journal, you know, trying to maintain their right to freely express disdain for, concern about uh, challenges to not just our politics, but even our economic system. And so if we don't protect and if we don't defend those publishers and those journalists who are controversial, who do push the limits, and who maybe very much offend the powerful of both parties, then we run the risk that someone like Donald Trump, as an example, returns to the presidency with strong majorities in the House and the Senate, not something that's beyond the realm of possibility, and then begins to really use their power to go after journalists that they disapprove of. Now, now, we talk about this idea of a legitimate journalist. Is there any definition anywhere of what constitutes a legitimate journalist? Is a journalist uh, just anyone who claims to be a journalist? And are they entitled to First Amendment protections then? Well, you get to the really hard part of this question. Uh, <laughs> you know, is, who is a legitimate journalist? Is it the uh, editor of the New York Times? Or is it the, the interviewer on WRT, Right. Um, very, very different people, but both doing journalism, right? Uh, and then is it the, the kid who starts a blog that, that exposes scandals in their school? Um, or is it the, the you know, publisher of uh, the Los Angeles Times, right? Or, or is it David Muir on ABC? Um, 
when you start to try and or, or Alex Jones, for example. Well, Alex Jones. See, here's where you get into an interesting thing, and I ask, it's a very good question, very good way to put it. Um, one of the ways that we can define a journalist is if you cl- clearly cross the lines of libel, right, and and of slander, right, and you do it. You know, we have libel laws in this country, and they apply. Now, you have immense freedom in this country to attack the powerful. There's no question of that. But you don't have immense freedom to absolutely, clearly lie, right? And that can be, that can be challenged in the courts. And I think that's what's happened with, as an example, Alex Jones. Um, and I would always be careful uh, to make the, the extreme exception to the rule. Someone who, you know, I think is sort of universally seen or almost universally seen as troublesome. Uh, the, the way to explain something away or the way to, to get rid of it. The bottom line is that in this case of Julian Assange, where, as we talk about him, uh, we're talking about someone who has been recognized as a journalist in many countries around the world, uh, who has been defended by the National Union of Journalists in the United Kingdom, by the International Federation of Journalists, which has been at the forefront of, of standing up on, uh, against this U.S. prosecution, and by uh, journalism groups, unions, organizations around the world. And so uh, I think that rather than I or you defining who a journalist is, I think you know, we can, to some extent, look at a crowdsourcing definition. Uh, and by that crowdsourcing definition, I think you can say that, that Julian Assange, at the very least, meets the standard of a publisher. And remember that when the First Amendment was written, it was written uh, primarily to defend publishers, not to defend working journalists. We didn't have a lot of working journalists in 1787. What we had was printers. And, you know, an individual would buy a printing press. They would often write a lot of what they published, but then they would also take uh, articles and, and arguments written by uh, polemicists, people like a Tom Paine or, or even you know, many of the signers of the Constitution and, and people who passed the Bill of Rights because they were, in that point, trying in a great political debate to define directions for the United States. They often failed, by the way. Um, they were very, very imperfect individuals in a very flawed moment. But, you know, it was that dialectic that actually led to, you know, at least some of the protections that we have and hopefully the expansion of them. So bottom line is that, that we should be very careful about trying to define someone out of the protections of the First Amendment. Uh, and we should recognize that if someone goes to extremes that are actually harmful, right, that are really hurting people, not trying to inform people, that there are protections against that. There are, again, uh, slander, libel laws, uh, and, and a host of other protections that, that have functioned throughout our history. Now, it, it's interesting that you talk about uh, you know, people rising to defend Julian Assange because many of Julian Assange's critics have sort of vilified him, calling into question yep. his personal behavior and ethics. He was a subject of a Swedish investigation into sexual harassment charges, for example. Even if such allegations are true, even if Assange is an unsavory personal character, should that matter when we're talking about the First Amendment? Well, there you go. Uh, look, uh, I have always been of the view that um, if we start to determine who is you know, appropriately acting 
as a journalist, right? And that's just interesting what they publish, but also how they behave, you know, what their approaches are. Um, what we're going to find is that most of our journalists don't measure up uh, because the, the truth is we all have, uh, you know, our flaws, our, our weaknesses. And, and so that, that approach misses the core concept. Most of the people, I shouldn't say most of the people, many of the people who have been at the, at the heart of free speech cases, not just freedom of the press, but also free speech and right to assemble and right to petition for the redress of grievances throughout our history have been folks that have been attacked personally, right? That have had sometimes legitimately, sometimes illegitimately charges brought against them as regards their personal behavior. And so I think what we have to do is, you know, look at the work, look at it, what was done, why it was done. And that's often hard to do, right? It's, you know, it's an interpretation. But in the case of Julian Assange, as an example, uh, what Assange did was set up a website that sought to publish information that was frankly embarrassing or maybe even offensive to governments, to power. Uh, that goes back to many founding premises of the American experiment. You know, Benjamin Franklin and others talked about uh, the fact that, you know, if you didn't, if publications didn't offend, you'd have very few publications. And so Assange set that up. He was contacted by someone who said, look, I've got information about what was at the time the, uh, you know, kind of the preeminent issue in the world, which was the Iraq war. And uh, Assange followed through with that, worked with the, the person who had that information and ultimately published it. That publication of that information, by the way, facilitated by uh, newspapers and media outlets around the world was very, very embarrassing to the U.S. government because it revealed uh, U.S. military doing incredibly destructive, deadly, dangerous things that were inappropriate in Iraq. And, and so that's, that's the work, right? And, and that's sort of the classic, that's the classic definition, you know, telling people what is being done in their name, but without their informed consent. And so I think that's what we go to when we think about people. I, when I was doing my piece on all this, I interviewed Ro Khanna, who's a congressman from California. And I'll paraphrase him and saying, you know, look, I'm no fan of Julian Assange, but um, I don't want this case to end up impacting not just Julian Assange, but journalism in general in the United States. John Nichols, national correspondent for The Nation magazine and associate editor for The Capital Times. Thanks so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. It's an honor to join you on work. What a pleasure.